This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Geno Time Podcast here on the Blue Wire Podcast Network. We are brought to you by Bet Online. My name is Tom Westerholm, Celtics beat writer for Mass Live. I am joined by Nicole Yang of the Boston Globe. Nicole, how are you? Pretty good, Tom. How are you? I'm hanging in there. We are going to talk about game two of the Celtics and the Raptors. How do you, how do you want to get into this? I mean, I guess to start, like, this is the game. This is what we were all hoping for out of this series. Like, for this sure. is what we thought we would get when it was a Celtics-Raptors second-round matchup. I mean, I don't think anybody would have expected Marcus Smart to make five straight threes at a very crucial part of the game, but you got that, too. Yeah, you wouldn't expect Smart to make, like, five straight threes, but you would expect some chaos, like, something wild to happen. And, like, for most of the game, nothing wild happened. And then it was like, yeah, like, obviously, Smart is the big story here. So I guess we can start with the flop. (laughs) So the Raptors, the score was... 75-66, Raptors were ahead, and they had a fast break, transition layup by Fred Van Vliet, but the basket was called off because they said there was an offensive foul on Siakam against Smart. Nick Nurse, of course, challenged it. The call not only was overturned, it was also reversed, so Smart got called for a foul. Yep. And I don't know if that maybe is what sort of, like, sparked Marcus. That seemed to be a turning point for him, though. And he acknowledged after the game, he was like, I think in the past I would have been really upset by that, but I've been trying to work on, like, staying calm and sort of not losing control of my emotions. So the basket counted, and then Siakam made the free throw. So it was 78-66, to and then Marcus Smart just makes five straight threes I would have to go back and watch, but I feel like all of them were nothing but net. Yeah, he was cashing those things Just straight, in. yeah, exactly. And so <laughs> the fifth one was an and one, and then when he finally missed, Grant Williams got a fantastic offensive rebound and dished it to Tatum, who made a three. So yep. I think the only appropriate reaction is just like, ha, 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 in all capitals, no matter who you are, because it's just like, how does yeah. this happen? And IT, so Isaiah Thomas tweeted, like, Marcus Smot, the whole Boston accent thing or whatever. And then after the game, Marcus quote tweeted and said, I was, like, IT or something for real, for real. And that's, like, I think a great comparison. It's like, he just went off and definitely saved the game. I thought the Celtics were going to turn to Tatum because he seemed to be having his way. I mean, he got to the line 14 times in the game, made all 14 baskets, So I thought that's where they were going to go. But it's funny because both Marcus and Kemba got off to slow starts but ended up being crucial in the fourth quarter. One thing I was going to say about Smart, I've been trying really hard to not be on Twitter at all during games except during quarter breaks and timeouts and stuff. So Smart made his second three 
And I kind of like checked Twitter just because I was like, oh, it's probably pretty funny right now. And sure enough, I saw a lot of people saying smart. And then I saw, I believe it was Gary Washburn tweeted smart again. And I was like, wait a minute, is he tweeting about the second three or did he just make a third one? And sure enough, here comes smart down the floor and made a third one. And it was this very confusing stretch on Twitter because like it's a few seconds delayed from the bubble to what we're watching on TV. And it was this very confusing stretch because smart was hitting so many threes that you couldn't tell whose like stream was behind, who was there. Like everybody was just tweeting, oh my goodness, is Marcus Smart. Gary's Twitter feed is pretty funny because sometimes it's a solid chunk ahead and he yeah. spoils the plays. And as someone who looks up plots of movies while we're watching the movie, like I love spoilers. So as someone who <laughs> appreciates that, I love Gary's feed because you can see what's going to happen. But I can see how that could be annoying. I've seen some fans complain to him being like, Gary, because <laughs> they just want to watch it in real time, obviously. It's like they're breaking news about the game that we're all <laughs> watching. The other storyline of the last, like, you know, five minutes of that game was just Kemba Walker being cardiac Kemba again. One of the things that struck me watching him, NBA players just have to, are and have to be just built so different. Because when you're that cold in a game, it is so easy to just take yourself out of it. You just don't want to shoot. And NBA players can't think that way. They have to think, like, I'm going to keep shooting. I'm going to make one. Tatum, after the game, who said something along the lines of, like, you just have to, like, believe because you never know when the next shot is going to go in and that's going to break you out of your cold streak. Kemba just kept shooting. And then finally down the stretch, like, he, you know, he hit a a big three. Um, He hit that step back crucial crucial player down the stretch after just a brutal start to the game yeah when he was asked about his bad start he was like do you know how many shots i've missed that was a really good line yeah because it's true it's like they take thousands of shots and miss like they miss so many shots and you just have to be like you said your mindset just has to be built differently and that's what brad always says and part of it is like basketball jargon sort of coach speak like oh you gotta have a short-term memory but it's true like you have to because you're just not going to be perfect from the field unless you're robert williams To Kemba Walker's point, he has missed exactly 6,309 shots in his career. I did think it was pretty noteworthy hearing him talk after the game. I, I feel bad for Kemba because he is constantly asked about his teammates. Reporters use him to like really puff up their stories about Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown because you always know that he's going to say something nice about them. Tonight it was Marcus Smart. You know, he had like four questions about Marcus Smart. You know, one of his answers was kind of illuminating. He said after the game, he said, a lot of times in my career in games like that, it probably would have been a blowout for me to have these guys who can just step up and make huge plays the way they did. Man, it's special. And it was like, yeah, I mean, the man's right. Whenever he wasn't going, Charlotte just didn't have any other juice. I know he gets asked about them all the time. I'm sure he's sick of of answering those questions. I actually don't think he cares. You might be 100% right, actually, yeah. Other superstars probably would, but I genuinely don't think he cares. He is probably the one superstar who doesn't. And I I wouldn't be surprised if part of the reason is just that. He knows the limits of like how good a team with just him as the star can be. I thought that that quote was illuminating, especially because it sort of roasts his Hornets teammates. Yeah, I thought so too. Not yeah. one to do that normally. Yeah. But to the point about the teammates, I thought tonight was going to be the night where we're like, oh, can the Celtics continue without Gordon Hayward? Because that's when you really like having Gordon on your team is when sort of the primary options. I mean, Tatum, he had, I think, a playoff high of 34. When, like, Kemba or Jalen aren't necessarily, like, cooking, you look to Gordon to either score or, like, help facilitate the offense, and he obviously wasn't there tonight. For an update on Gordon, Brad said on the radio 
today that he is coming back down to the bubble, but it's highly unlikely he will be ready before the four-week timetable. And he said that even that timetable was pretty aggressive. Four weeks would bring us to September 15th, and that is well beyond Game 7 of this series. No way he's going to play in this series, and they probably are hoping for Bucks Heat to go a little bit longer than four games, so that way he can potentially be ready. And even then, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it would be like, uh, hopefully he's ready for game two type Or situation. even later in the series. Yeah, exactly, yeah. It's interesting that they're having him come back because I was told that Robin's due date is at the end of September. I mean, I guess you might as well have him so that way you don't have to quarantine if he happens to be ready or stuff like that. But I still wouldn't be surprised if he misses the entire conference finals, to be honest. Depending on how the league schedules them, maybe they'll benefit because the West seems to be very behind. So who knows? But I wouldn't expect to see Gordon Hayward anytime soon. I would agree. So yeah, let's, let's go through some, uh, some of the quicker hitters of the, of the game that we, uh, that we noticed. I uh, got yelled at by Celtics Twitter, but I stand by my take that Jason Tatum needs to stop doing the things that are like borderline technicals because he does them all the time. And it's like, look, if you want to be demonstrative, fine. If you want to argue with the refs, fine. But there's like two or three things that you just are always putting yourself at risk for a technical if you do them. And like waving your hand at the referee, clapping or slamming the ball on the ground. And those are three things that he does, like, multiple times a game. There have been times where he's slammed the ball, and I've been surprised he hasn't gotten a technical. Yeah. There are ways to show emotion that are not, like, walking right up the line of a technical and kind of, like, putting your toe over it. He just needs to stop doing those things. Like, he's, he's putting himself at risk multiple times a game. Yeah, everyone was really mad about that technical, and Tatum admitted after the game that it was the right call, and technically it is the right call. Whether you think a technical should be called for just sort of air punching or throwing your arms, they made the right call. Yeah, I mean, I, I get your argument if you say it's a soft technical, especially in, like, a important moment in the playoffs. Like, sure, I you know, I even agree with all of that. But my point is just that, like, Tatum can't, like, give the refs the permission structure to do that. Like, just don't do it. I did think it was funny that uh Brad was asked, a two-part question. Uh, the first question was about the technical. The second question was about Tatum's defense on the last play. And Brad said, tremendous defense by Tatum on the last play, which, LOL, that he uh, was just like immediately like, oh, let me talk about the not technical part. He said, because it's so easy when you're going in transition to back up inside that three and give a three, but for him to stop outside the three and use his length and not foul, that certainly impacted the shot. Really tremendous and made up for his technical. So I, I think it's probably safe to say that Brad agrees with our assessment. I'm sure it's hard for Brad to like critique Tatum after games like this because he truly was magnificent magnificent on both ends. I don't think it's hard for Brad to critique Tatum. <laughs> That's probably true. Brad can always find those little things, which he yeah. should be able to do as a coach. Yes, for sure. And then uh, one other officiating note, like Nick Nurse really got his money's worth for the upcoming fine that he has coming for uh, complaining about the officiating in his post game. He had uh, a lot of things to say about Jason Tatum getting to the line 14 times. He had the Tatum comment, and then he had the Siakam. He thought Siakam got fouled right. on sort yeah. of Toronto's last drive there. Was that what he was talking about, was the last drive? I, yeah, I actually... so it was the one where they had to review whether Smart was out of bounds. He thought Siakam had gotten fouled before that, like on the street. Right, strip. okay. It's funny because in hockey, at least in the small bits of hockey that I've covered this year and last year in the playoffs, when a coach criticizes the officiating, typically the officiating goes in their favor sort of the next games and stuff like that. 
So I'm curious to see whether there will be any difference moving forward. I guess if you're going to criticize the officiating once, you might as well go all in because you'll probably get fined 25000 regardless. So yep, get everything you can. You might as well get it all out. I assume some of that was just pure frustration because that has to be a hard loss for the Raptors. They really had a chance there and it sort of just slipped away. They've had two games now where the Celtics have turned the ball over a bunch. Today they had three and a half quarters of just brutal Kemba play. Like, they've had their opportunities. This game, I mean, it's got to be insanely frustrating to have Marcus Smart just, like, to have an eight-point lead and have Marcus Smart just bury you. It's like not only is Marcus Smart making five threes in a row, the Raptors, I think, in game one, they went 10 for 40 from three, and then tonight they went 11 from 40. They're better than that. Kyle Lowry went 0 for 7. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, what other uh, what other notes did you have? So Siakam, I think, came out pretty aggressive, and you could tell yeah. he was trying to, like, assert himself in the paint. Even when he got buckets, they were tough. He finished with 17 on 6 for 16 shooting. He just has yet to really, I think, make his presence known. And I think the Raptors as a whole, I feel like, just haven't been playing that cohesive, if that makes sense. Like, it just seems pretty disjointed, and they're just getting their offense in little spurts, or like OG Ananobi gives like a spark, or like... Rob, when... Rob Williams didn't read the scouting report on Serge Ibaka. <laughs> I was going to say, or Rob checks in and Serge Ibaka starts shooting threes and jumpers. <laughs> So we should know we're going to get back to Rob. We're going to talk about Rob. He was great. He has not defended Serge Ibaka well. Um, but so, yeah, I feel like that's usually Toronto's strength, though, is that they can play really well as a unit and they're just like they're a collective force. But with Siakam and Lowry just having these in Van Vliet, frankly, having these offensive struggles, it just is hard for them to get in that rhythm. And part of that is the Celtics defense. If I'm the Raptors, I'm concerned that this is just going to be a problem in this series because their half-court offense is brutal. If you take into account like any play where the Raptors take the ball out of bounds, they have the 24th best offense in the league. That's brutal. If you have to work that hard to get buckets, I mean, it explains why you see Siakam posting up so many times every game, you know, because it's just, it's just hard to get any good offense. And I think if I'm the Raptors, I'm concerned that I have done what I needed to do against the Celtics in that I've turned them over a bunch and I still haven't been able to have like a ton of offensive success. Like they are definitely shooting worse than I would expect, except that their half court offense has always kind of been this. If this series continues on kind of the current path that it's on, I think it will be, I mean, not, you know, probably not Brad's best playoff coaching performance of all time, but like one of them. I think this will be up there with the Sixers in 2018 or or whatever it might be. Like this will be up there because he has gotten the Celtics to not only take the Raptors out of transition, but to like figure out ways that when the Raptors get into that semi-transition or that secondary transition, you know, he's figured out ways to make sure that that they limit them. I mean, I, I think he deserves a lot of credit for how well the Celtics are playing right now. For sure. One other thing I had in my notes, it's kind of funny that Daniel Tice, who was like the clear starting center throughout the regular season, has sort of been relegated in the playoffs. In round one, Ennis Cantor was definitely the guy, and Brad even admitted it today. He wouldn't admit it during the series, but he admitted it today that like Ennis was the best option of the three. Well, the reason he was willing to admit that is because he wants to gas Cantor up so he doesn't feel so bad about sitting out this series, I think. But still, the fact that he said it, Cantor was the guy in round one, and now Rob is the guy in round two. And it's no slight to Tice because he was a great 
starting center throughout the regular season. I think he exceeded a lot of people's expectations. But it's just funny. I can't think of another team or another like situation where you just totally push aside your starting center in both playoff rounds. We always say Brad is quick to remind players of what they need to improve on, but he had plenty of praise for Rob. He said that Rob saved us. Rob kept us in the game. Um, He's the only reason we were in the game in the first quarter. I mean, Rob, as soon as he checks into the game, Kemba throws him a lob, and he just offers a different threat that Tice doesn't have, like that explosion, that verticality that Brad always talks about. It's like, and Brad explained it actually in the pregame because their shooters are so dangerous and they have so many threats, forces Toronto to sort of come up then Rob can sort of just get behind them and they can find Rob and it's an easy lane for him. So it works really well. He had a scary fall, but like the fact that he recognized the offensive rebound opportunity and put that back, like beat out both Raptors to the ball, put it back for the dunk, even though he fell, we actually didn't ask for an update from Brad on him. Yeah, big swing and a miss by us on that one. He initially stayed in the game, went to the locker room, came out with this huge ice pack, and ended up checking back into the game. Celtics have tomorrow off, so I guess we'll ask Brad for game three. But, yeah, I think Rob had another good showing tonight. No, for sure. I mean, I think some of this stuff I think is actually going to be pretty easy to clean up because it's like, okay, so the Ibaka thing, you can see what he's doing. Like he's dropping back to contain the guard and then he just gets like sucked way off Ibaka and then he's got to try to recover all the way to him. Whatever that is, like whatever little miscommunication is happening there, it's pretty much exclusively happening to Rob. (laughs) So like whatever it is, I feel like it's probably a pretty easy fix. And I think like, you know, the Celtics will probably be able to fix that. But like, and that's not to say that Ibaka is, is only getting buckets when Rob is in the game. They just go to him more. Yeah, I think that's, I honestly think that's what it is. Yeah. Like a couple of things about Rob. One, I will be fascinated to see what happens next year because I think Rob is making a pretty solid case for himself to start. I don't know how you take Tice out of the starting lineup given how well he has played with them. I don't know. I mean, Rob seems to have great chemistry with the starters. I think they love, I mean, I think. I think as Tatum gets better and better at passing, and actually as he gets better and better touch on his floaters, I think he'll become a better lob passer too. So I think the Tatum-Rob combo in the pick and roll could be really beneficial for the Celtics. Yeah, I could see them just still focusing on his development. I don't think they care if he's a starter. I don't think he cares if he's a starter. So I could see them just sort of splitting the minutes, but he's technically coming off the bench. But in reality, they both get equal playing time and stuff like that. So speaking of player development, I think Grant Williams has surpassed Shemi in sort of the rotation. I don't really know what Shemi's value is in this series. If he can't get the three to fall, it's just really hard to watch sometimes. My read on Shemi is that if he makes his first three, he's going to be very playable. And if he misses one or two at the start of the game, it's going to be really hard offensively to keep him on the floor. And I just think that's too bad because uh, we have seen Shemi work so hard on that three. You just can't leave him in for a long time if he's if he's shooting like that. I don't know what the answer is because I don't think you can just bench him because you might have Giannis coming up and you're going to need him. I don't know. It's tough. I totally agree with you. Anecdotally, that makes sense because we've seen nights where he does make threes and he does seem confident. And then there are nights like tonight where it's just like, this is tough to watch. So I wonder if we see his minutes 
sort of continued to decline. I think tonight I have to check the box score, but I don't know if he even got in in the second half. I don't think he did. I think that's yeah. right. I mean, I agree with you on Grant too. I mean, I there were a couple of plays tonight where he was guarding Siakam and like there was one where Siakam like tried to like jab step him and Grant moved like his footwork was precise in a way that you just don't see with a rookie. And in theory, you would think that that would be a mismatch the Raptors would want to take advantage of is if Grant Williams is guarding Pascal Siakam, they would say, like, Pascal, go to work. You know, there's not, like, a huge drop-off from the starting unit to Shemi defensively. Like, I mean, I think, you know, Jalen and Jason are certainly better defenders, but I don't think that Shemi's bad by any means. So it really just does come down to, like, if he makes a couple of threes, he can be a really useful player in the game and can buy you some minutes. Realistically, that's all the Celtics are looking for with Gordon Hayward out. They're just looking for somebody who can buy you some minutes in that second unit. Shemi, it just depends on the game. Like, there's going to be games like tonight where he looks completely unplayable. There's going to be games where he's like, he makes a couple of threes and then they have to close out hard and then he gets like a, he drives by a closeout or like gets a big dunk and it's just like, wait, where did this come from? So... I think that's what happens when one of your best players goes down with an injury. You're going to have to turn to people that you don't necessarily trust in the playoffs. Right, right, right. Another note that I wanted to get into was uh, Tatum's passing. One of the things that I've noticed is when he gets out of the pick and roll, when defenses collapse on him, he has gotten so good at just like, just like rifling that pass out to the three point line. Um, he had a couple of passes tonight that were really high level. One of them was to Smart during Smart's three point barrage. And Smart wasn't like wide open when Tatum found him with the pass, but like the, the things that he is starting to do as a pick and roll player when defenses really freak out, which is going to happen more and more because he's deadly. But as defenses freak out and start to like collapse on him or start to like, you know, double him or whatever it is, he's learning very quickly how to, how to be a really good passer. And I mean, I know we say all the time, just like, well, when Tatum adds this, he's going to be completely unstoppable. And then he just like adds it on the fly. One of the things that Jay Laranega has told me multiple times now is just like how quickly Tatum catches on to things. They introduce a concept to him. He works on it for like a practice or two. And then a week later, they're like, like in a game, they'll just be like, oh, that's what we were showing him on Friday. What is going on here? I wouldn't be surprised if passing becomes something that Tatum is, is really, really good at because like out of necessity, yeah, I think somebody said that tonight his his six assists were a career high. Yeah, his, his game is going to really fill out in interesting ways. You know, I don't I don't think he's going to be exclusively a volume scorer. But yeah, what else did you have? Did you have anything else to go over tonight? Not much else from the game. Uh I did tweet this, but so Tatum was wearing these purple sneakers tonight and they are taco themed and these are his third player exclusives that are taco themed. Taco with a C, not a CK, we should note. (laughs) And I just, like, imagine liking tacos. This isn't a diss, but just, like, imagine liking food so much that you make three Jordans. Like, three of your player exclusives are centered around this food. I am going to say that there is a burrito in northwest Iowa from a place called La Juanita's. I would absolutely have a player exclusive shoe based on the La Juanita's burrito, because it was that good. Okay, Um, one, but not three. You know, make me an offer, and I might be willing to do three. I just think it's funny that, like, tacos have become part of, like, Jason Tatum's persona. And I think the thing is, though, is, like, this is his choice. Like, I'm pretty sure, I was trying to think, so the shoes that he wore tonight say Taco J on the back. I'm pretty sure he gave himself that nickname. This isn't a media thing. Like, he is obsessed with tacos. He posts them on his social media all the time. He made waves last All-Star because he said he puts three bags of cheese on a serving of tacos. 
He calls himself Taco J. So yeah. He's all self-creative. Yeah. I mean, I think it's partly because Taco J is fun to say. I don't know. There's something uh, kind of aesthetically pleasing about Taco J. No, no. I, yeah, I no, it's catchy. It's catchy, right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But it's just, I don't think I hear anybody else call him Taco J, except yeah. for himself on social media, which all the power to him. But there's an amusing element to the fact that Jason Tatum has chosen to brand himself around tacos. There definitely is. I feel like friend of the show, Jam Packard, was one of the first people on the Taco J wave. Like one of the first people to notice that Jason Tatum was uh, was calling himself Taco J. So shout out to Taco Jam. One thing I thought was kind of funny, Marcus Smart was 6 for 13 from the field and 6 for 11 from 3. So that man just didn't even bother to come inside the three-point line. <laughs> that is funny. One last development that I'll note is the Utah Jazz were eliminated from the playoffs. And based on the NBA rules and stuff, the exit is fairly soon. Like, I imagine they will be home literally tomorrow, if not later tonight. Tonight, probably, I think, yeah. No more Jalen Brown, Donovan Mitchell run-ins in the bubble, which is unfortunate for content purposes. But, yeah, it's pretty wild. I forget which player was talking about it, but they make you pack. Like, if you're on the brink of elimination, you have to pack before the game so that way you can leave right after the game. I feel like there has to be a psychological element of, like, eh, we already packed. We might as well just – I mean, they're NBA players. They probably do have those rare competitive juices. But, like, me, the average person, it's like, I'm already packed. Might as well just, like, forget about it at this point. I wonder sometimes if there isn't just, like, a part of the players that are just like, look, I could try to win this game. Or I could be home in my own bed and I – like, I could just – I could just do that instead of having to hang around for, like, a couple more days or, like, a few more weeks – I guess my last thing is how much I enjoy how many times we say one last thing. So we will leave it there. Thank you to everybody who listens. Please feel free to leave us a five-star review and a rating. And we will talk to you all after game three. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G. Because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from Metrics second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement.